Father, we are reminded of this morning and so very grateful for our freedom. The freedom to meet without hassle of any kind. The freedom to participate in your family, in your church, without persecution. The freedom to know that we are safe. And we do thank you, Lord, for all those who have gone before and paid the price for that freedom. And we thank you, Lord, this morning for the one who paid the price for our spiritual freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt and shame and regret. Praise you for Jesus Christ and for his work on our behalf. Ask, Lord, now that you would allow your spirit to fill this place. I thank you for the time that we have shared in worship and for what a delight it is to gather together and lift up your name. Praise you for what you're doing in each one of our lives. We commit the remainder of this service to you and ask that as we go into your word now that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and help us to understand what it is you have for us. So Father, we commit this time to you in the name of your Son. Amen. Uh, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you're going to need one to follow along in as we get into the Word. If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will give you one that you can use for the service if you would like. And um, you'll be able to dig in with us. And if you're visiting with us here this morning, uh, first of all, welcome. Secondly, if you're receiving a Bible right now and you do not have your own Bible, please keep the one that you get uh, as our gift to you and dig into it and see what God has to say to you in his word. All right, we continue this morning in our series on the gospel, on the good news that God has delivered to us in so many ways, and that Christ has commissioned us to go out and share with those around us. We've been looking at the fullness of this good news, how it reaches into every corner of our lives to bring light and hope and before we move into anything new this morning, I'd like us to, to take a moment to simply reflect on something together. It's very easy for us to take for granted the fact that the good news was delivered to us and is now ours to enjoy forever. As children of God adopted by grace into his eternal family, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing of heaven. We are now members of God's household, citizens of his kingdom, brothers and sisters of his son, Jesus Christ. Now remember the signs that I had up here with me last Sunday? They represented a picture of the fullness of the gospel of God. We talked about some of the ways in which we can always be communicating good news to those around us. And in the process, we build a platform upon which the gospel of salvation can be proclaimed. We looked at the scope of the gospel and how there's always a place in the lives of those we know who do not yet know Christ for the good news of the gospel. We can always find opportunities to communicate the gospel of grace, mercy, light, reconciliation, hope, power, worth, courage, freedom, truth, life, or peace into someone's situation. 
There is need for good news all around us. And we should be asking God daily to show us where those opportunities are. People need good news. And we're the ones who have been entrusted by God with the mission of delivering that good news to them. But as we look for these opportunities, we're, we're also to be aware of the fact that we ourselves have received the good news of grace, mercy, light, reconciliation, hope, power, worth, courage, freedom, truth, life, and peace. Those things have been made available to us whether we see them or not. And I fear sometimes that we don't see them. We get caught up focusing on our earthly circumstances and quickly lose sight of the fact that all of these things, the riches of the gospel of God, belong to us already. And all of these things will last forever. My reality, my reality is this. I am blessed in abundance. My cup overflows. God's grace has been poured out on me. I have been spared by God's mercy. I walk in God's light and no longer fear the darkness. God has reconciled me to himself and restored our relationship. I have hope in eternity and in my own earthly future. I live day to day in the power God has given me through his Holy Spirit. I know that I have infinite eternal value to my creator. God is giving me in increasing doses the courage I need to face the challenges of this world. I'm finding freedom from the things that so easily enslave me. God is revealing his truth to me every day as I dig into his word. I know that I am alive and that death has been overcome forever in my life. And I'm experiencing that peace that passes understanding no matter what my circumstances are. That's my reality. I am a rich, rich man. My cup overflows. The Lord is my shepherd and has generously provided all these things for me and they are now mine forever. I lack nothing. The grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for me. Now, I could spend the next hour boasting of all these things that are mine, but the reality is that these things are yours too. So there's no room for boasting when we all possess the same riches that I've just been talking about. You and I share in this wealth. We are all blessed recipients of the riches of Jesus Christ demonstrated in the fullness of the gospel. So what's left for us to do then is the sharing part. My cup overflows. Your cup overflows. The cup of this church, Chapel Hill Church, overflows. All God's asking of us is that we follow his lead into places and lives where we can distribute that abundance of good news that flows out of our cups. Let me challenge us a bit here. Our circumstances do not have to reach some point that we're not at right now in order for us to begin sharing out of our abundance. Far too often we look at our circumstances and we think that maybe we're, maybe we're on the way to an abundance, but we just haven't arrived yet. Maybe when we've arrived, we'll start sharing. Maybe when things improve for us. When we've attained more security for ourselves, we'll start sharing what we have. When we feel more confident, 
When we feel we have more time. When we feel like our lives are better examples of God's abundance. When we have more knowledge. Well, that's not right. It's not right. Right now, every one of us has been given an abundance of good news to the point where we have plenty of good news to share with someone else. The good news is not the good news of how great our lives are. The good news is the good news of how great God is and how great life in his family is. It's not about what we possess here on earth. The good news is about what we possess in heaven and what we possess that will last forever. And we possess those things right now. God gives us the credibility to be messengers of good news We don't somehow attain that credibility ourselves by proving that we can create a secure, comfortable life for ourselves. We already have the security of eternal life, and that's enough to make us credible messengers of the good news of God. We've looked to the Apostle Paul as our source of inspiration for this series. He set the example for us as one who was set apart for the gospel of God. He modeled for us great commitment to the gospel, how he had become all things to all men for the sake of seeing the gospel reach at least some. We're going to study together this morning something that he wrote in the book of Philippians. All along we've been drawing from him the attitude towards and understanding of the gospel that we're looking for. So let me ask you this. Where was Paul when he wrote his letter to the church in Philippi? Where was he? What were his circumstances? Had he reached that ideal place when it just seemed so natural and easy to share the good news based on how well things were going in his life? Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison. The good news, the gospel of God, news that has impacted the world for thousands of years, came from a prison cell in Rome. The good news did not need anything beyond itself to give it credibility and power. The good news had come to Paul, filled his life to overflowing, and spilled out of his life into ours because of the power of that good news, not the power of Paul's circumstances. Our proclamation of the good news does not depend at all on our circumstances in order for it to go out with power. As far as I know, none of you are living in prison right now. None of you were formerly persecutors of Christ's followers to the degree that Paul was. So we're at least a notch above Paul's circumstances. The good news is good news no matter where you're at in life. Worldly success has nothing at all to do with being a messenger of the good news. You and I do not need to have it all together in order to be used by God to communicate his good news to the world. Paul was a prisoner in Rome, a former persecutor of Christians, and his declaration of the good news had a tremendous impact on this world. We are already blessed to the point of overflowing, and God has given us all that we need to fulfill his charge to be proclaimers of his good news. We don't need to be waiting for something to happen in our circumstances. It's already happened. We have received the good news and have been commissioned by Christ to spread it. 
he will bring the credibility and power that are needed for his message to go out. What he needs from us is willingness and obedience. So turn with me now to the book of Philippians. Go to Philippians chapter 1. This will be our text for the morning. And I had such a great time looking at this passage this week. Um, I thought I was going to use one verse out of Philippians 1 to support what I felt I needed to say this morning. But I got drawn into this chapter as I read and I just stayed there. Um, This letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi is such an amazing book. I've studied it many times. I've used all kinds of study tools to do it. But this time God showed me something new again. And I want to share that with you. And I want to encourage you to get very familiar with the book of Philippians. Uh, Read it regularly. It'll bless you every time. Um, To set up what we're about to read, let me put an image in your head. Um, It's the image of of a touchdown. And I want to ask a couple of you to do something for me, and I didn't prompt you on this. So Peter Kuznia, will you stand up in the middle of the aisle here? Mike Martins, stand in the aisle just a little bit behind him, okay? Just stand in the middle of the aisle right there. You guys got health insurance? (laughs) Here's what I want to talk to you about. Chapel Hill Church, um, we we love touchdowns. We live in a society that loves touchdowns. We, We love our football team. We love Adrian Peterson because he scores lots of touchdowns for us. We're big fans of touchdowns. We're pretty excited because the Super Bowl is coming to Minnesota. That we probably won't be playing in it, but it'll be played here anyway. <laughs> but we get excited about touchdowns, don't we? We love to watch the highlights. We love to watch it over and over again when someone scores an awesome touchdown. We are big fans of touchdowns. And when we're little, my little boys love touchdowns. They love to score touchdowns. They love to score goals in hockey. They love to, to, to get hits in baseball, all that kind of stuff. But Somewhere shortly after their age, when they get to about 10 or maybe a little older, you start to realize that, okay, I'm probably not going to be the one scoring the touchdowns. So I will be a fan of touchdowns. I will become a spectator and a cheerleader of those who score touchdowns. You can see where I'm going with this, can't you? In church, we've become fans of touchdowns. We've become fans of those who take the gospel and deliver it to somebody else. And it reaches the end zone. We get excited about that. We cheer for that. Because we love to see it happen. We've become big fans of that. Is that what we're called to do in the Bible? It's not, is it? We're not called to be fans of touchdowns. We're called to take the good news and deliver it. And if you'll picture this aisle for a minute as my football field and the end zone is down at that end, I am called by God to deliver the good news to the end zone, to share the good news with someone who has not yet heard it, aren't I? That's what I've been called to do. And so I get here and I go, that's going to take a lot of effort. I'm not so sure I really want to do that because it's going to take quite a bit of effort here. I mean, the end zone's way down there. And have you seen everything that I have on my plate? Have you even looked at my schedule? 
It's going to take time, it's going to take effort, it's going to take investment for me to get the ball to the end zone. And honestly, I don't have the capacity for that. I need more margin in my life. That's not going to give me margin. And then maybe we get up there, maybe we get the, the motivation to go, okay, I can do this, I can do this. And then we look down the field and standing in our path are major obstacles. And just, <laughs> let me get just a little closer, you can see what kind of obstacle I'm talking about here, okay? <laughs> there are obstacles in our way, and, and I'm sorry, Peter and Mike, but two of the main obstacles that stand in our way are our fear and our pride, Right? And they're major obstacles. Sorry, Mike, you had to be pride. (laughs) And so we look at that and go, there is no way with those obstacles in the way. And I love the fact that I'm using an aisle because the road is narrow, right? I don't get to go around them. I have to go through them. And I am not, go ahead and sit down, guys. Thank you. I I, I did not receive the calling to stand back here and go, where are the heroes? Who in the world is going to take this down there? Give me stories. I want to hear about somebody who's done this. That'll be motivating to me. I will think about it if I hear those stories. Instead of facing the fact that there's, there's fear and pride in my way and I have to go through them. I don't get to sit back here and be a cheerleader for whoever it is that's going to get the gospel to the end zone. There's an interesting scenario that played out in our extended family recently. Um, understand this if you're visiting. I'm Canadian. I'm a hockey fan. And it's in my blood. Hockey's in my blood. And so when I found out that one of my nieces became a cheerleader for the Boston Bruins, I wasn't happy. <laughs> I was kind of embarrassed. She's studying dance out in Boston and needed a job, and she got a job as a cheerleader on skates for a professional hockey team for the Boston Bruins. Um, So we get a call from her mother, all excited because the Bruins made the playoffs and, and all that kind of stuff, and she's like, you're cheering for the Bruins, right? No, I can't stand the Bruins. I really don't like the team, so nope, that's not gonna make me cheer for the Bruins. But you have to cheer for the Bruins because Michaela is one of their cheerleaders. And if the Bruins win the Stanley Cup, you know that she gets a Stanley Cup ring too, right? (laughs) Because she's such an important part of the team. And I'm glad I wasn't the only one that was laughing at that because (laughs) I'm faced with this dilemma going, no, she's not. She is not going to wear a Stanley Cup ring because she's a cheerleader for the Bruins. We don't get to wear rings for being cheerleaders, folks. We need to be on the field. We're the ones who have been called by God to deliver the good news. Not to be fans here in our comfortable chairs of those who do. It is so easy to live as Christians, as part of the church, and be inspired and entertained by stories of how others have scored touchdowns, delivered the good news of the gospel, and we can do that for our entire lives. 
And I could easily devote a significant amount of time as your pastor researching those stories so that I could share them with you. Stories of missionaries who have led scores of people to Christ. Stories of evangelists and pastors, ministry leaders and Christian speakers who have fearlessly proclaimed the good news. Seeing God's power on display as he draws people into the kingdom. But life in the stands or on the couch or in our chairs is nothing compared to life on the field. Being used by God to deliver his good news is so much more rewarding and fulfilling than sitting where we are and watching somebody else do it. And my prayer for this church is that every one of us will continually experience what it is to to deliver that good news, to be the ones who score the touchdowns. My prayer is that we, you and I, will be the ones bringing the good news of hope and peace and life and reconciliation to those around us. That we'll stop waiting for someone else to do it. That we'll get out of the stands and onto the field. So let's go back to Paul and his life and words. It would be too easy for us to look at Paul and Peter and John and the others and think that God called them specifically to do the scoring And that God has specifically called the select few throughout history to be the ones with a special calling and gifting to carry the ball to the end zone. We can get caught up thinking that the staff of the church are really the ones that ought to be doing those things. We can think that the ministry of the church is to keep pouring into our personal cups so that we can have more and more. That kind of thinking goes directly against what we see in God's word. As a church, we will continue to give you what you need to grow in Christ. We will continue to provide ways in which you can experience and contribute to the joy of what it means to be a part of the family and fellowship of God. But we'll also be very intentional about equipping you to join God in his his mission of getting the good news to the world. So let's look at what I see in the book of Philippians that sets us up for our text today. Look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. This is what Paul writes as he starts his letter to the church. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul did not refer to the church as merely the recipients of the gospel. He referred to them as partners in the gospel. Partners. Along with Paul, the church in Philippi and the church here in Egan are partners in the gospel. Recipients, yes, absolutely recipients. But more than that, we are all partners in God's plan to proclaim the good news to the world through his church. You and Paul are partners in ministry. And that's pretty cool to me. You and I are partners in ministry with the Apostle Paul and with Peter and with John and with Jesus So let's take up that position this morning as we hear from God's word. Paul's writing to the church as if they were all partners with him in the gospel. Because they are. We are. 
So what does Paul have to say to us, to his partners? Well, some very powerful words, some challenging words. Let's listen. Look down at verse 12, and we'll read through the rest of chapter 1. Paul writes this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and he's talking here about his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, the progress and jo- for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. In this passage, there are some very powerful words that Paul speaks to the church regarding the gospel. And I want to draw our attention to them for the next little while here. Paul makes at least seven statements here that I saw as I looked through this passage once again. And each one of these statements presents us with a challenge. The first statement Paul makes here is this. Regarding the gospel, no matter what it takes, in all circumstances, advance it. Right away in verse 12, we can see that Paul's highest concern is to advance the gospel. And just look at the perspective that Paul has here in verse 12. He actually believes that his imprisonment is serving to advance the gospel. Paul's not out in the marketplace or in the temples proclaiming or defending the good news of Christ. He's in prison. Now that doesn't seem to be a very strategic platform from which to proclaim the gospel, does it? Paul had previously been given very large audiences to talk to. He had a very public ministry at one point. 
Now here he is locked up in Rome with a very limited audience and less than ideal circumstances. Yet he writes of how his limited circumstances are serving to advance the gospel. So much for the idea that we have to be in full-time ministry to be, to be messengers of the good news. Advancing the gospel happens in all kinds of circumstances. For Paul, his circumstances were walls and bars and a small audience of prison guards. They viewed him as a criminal, but Paul viewed himself as a messenger of the good news to them. Now, how thoroughly is this destroying the excuse we make for not seeing ourselves as people whom God has chosen to use to advance his gospel? Paul could clearly see an advancement of the gospel from his own circumstances, poor as they were. How much easier should this be for those of us living free, surrounded with opportunities every day? Paul's telling us here that no matter what it takes in all circumstances, advance the gospel. He had guards to work on. He had pen and paper to write with. He didn't need more than that. In Paul's bleak circumstances, God brought his own power to Paul's situation and the gospel advanced. Pray that God uses you in whatever your circumstances are to advance his gospel. Pray that he uses every one of us. Okay, look at the next statement that's here about the gospel. In the face of any and all opposition, defend the gospel. Defend the gospel. In verse 16, Paul talks about having been put there in prison in those bleak circumstances to defend the gospel. His life, when reduced to nearly nothing as a prisoner, provided him with an opportunity to defend the good news about Christ. As he looked around him and heard about those who were proclaiming the gospel for all the wrong reasons, Paul stayed true to the message of the gospel making it clear that the message was not about him, it was about Christ. There were others around Paul who were preaching the gospel, but who looked down on Paul, um, probably because he was not, in their minds, the best example of a messenger of the gospel. So they may have been trying to convince others to listen to them instead of Paul, believing that their lives were somehow superior to his and and had more credibility since he was the one who had been arrested and thrown in jail. But Paul saw his mission as having to defend the gospel and not let himself or his life be central to the gospel. He knew that that he was not the center of the gospel, but that Christ was the center of the gospel. So he defended the good news by intentionally deflecting the attention from him and from others and on to Christ. Now listen, our lives are not central to the gospel. Our lives are testimonies, witnesses to the gospel. Our stories are showcases of God's power and his love. Our lives are all worthy of being used by God to proclaim the good news. But only if the good news remains Christ and not us. So Paul calls us to defend that essential truth that this is the good news of God, not the good news of us and how impressive we are. And then Paul moves on to another statement about the gospel in verses 18 through 20. He says that with deep courage and no shame, we are to proclaim it. Paul rejoiced in in every proclamation of the gospel, even if the motives of those proclaiming it were not perfect. Paul just wanted to see, wanted so badly to see the gospel proclaimed to the world. 
Now, obviously, we can see Paul's courage in proclaiming the gospel. That's easy for us to see. Here, as he wrote this letter to the church, he was in prison for proclaiming it, but Paul expressed his desire to the church that he would not be at all ashamed of the good news of Christ. And this is not the first time we see this desire on Paul's part or in his writings. He had asked one of the other churches to pray for him that he would find the courage he needed. He mentioned in Romans that he was not ashamed of the gospel. He taught Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. With deep courage and no shame, Paul says, proclaim the good news. And we don't have to look any further than Paul's example to draw our inspiration. Um, Paul faced more reasons for fear in his faith walk than any of us ever will. Yet he still found the courage and the devotion to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Now can we pray for that for each other? Can we pray for that for each other in this church? Pray for the people around you in this room as they pray for you Pray that we will all find the courage and that none of us will be ashamed of the good news no matter what the world might think. In verses 22 through 26, Paul makes another statement about our commitment to the gospel. And this is what he says. He says, for the sake of the progress of others, we are to work for the gospel. For the sake of the progress of others, work for it. Paul saw his efforts to spread the good news as fruitful labor. So what in your life is truly fruitful labor? Fruitful labor. Is there anything as meaningful as working to advance the kingdom of God? Paul didn't think so, and neither should we. We put so much effort and time and resources into advancing our own little kingdoms. But Paul's challenging us to work for the sake of the gospel, to find more time, to invest more energy and resources into advancing the gospel rather than just advancing the level of comfort and security in our own lives. This, Paul says, is fruitful labor and we are to work for it. This challenges all of us to look at our own lives and to discover what it is that we're investing our time on earth in. Are we really partnering with Paul in the gospel? can't miss his devotion to this. Paul could see that he was close to death. He had suffered greatly for the gospel. He had been through so much. He was at the point where he had to decide whether to give up and die or press on and live. He chose to live for the sake of the progress of others and their reception of the good news. Do I really need to say anything more about Paul's example here? He wasn't being a drama queen. Paul chose life for the sake of the gospel. And then he encourages us with this. In every way, Paul says in verse 27, with your whole life, live for the gospel. Live for it. He says that we're to let the manner of our lives be worthy of the gospel. Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, even physically, the gospel speaks into our whole lives and we're being asked by God to lay down our whole lives for the sake of the gospel. The world so desperately needs to hear, see, and experience the good news of God. And they need to see it in ways that are relevant to them, in ways that connect with where they are, in ways that connect with who they are, in ways that connect with their circumstances, 
So we as the messengers of the gospel need to make the gospel visible and known in all aspects of our lives. Then in verse 27, Paul speaks of the role of the church community in this. He says, together with the church of Christ, we are to strive for the gospel. This has to be at the heart of the ministry of the church. The light of the church is to shine brightly in the darkness. We're to be striving together to see the gospel reach the people near to us and far from us. We're to be a city on a hill here at 4888 Pilot Knob Road. And we are to strive together, sharing the passion and the burden to see the gospel go out from here. Every one of us, as partners with Paul in the gospel, has a part in this. Every single one of us. Um, I can't wait for next Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to celebrate together the journey that God's brought us on as a church over the last few years. Um, Together, we're going to put a stake in the ground and we're going to praise God for his faithfulness as we look ahead to a new chapter in the life of this church. And that new chapter is going to be characterized by a commitment to being disciples of Christ and to making disciples of Christ. We'll look together at the example and instruction that Jesus gave us and what that looks like specifically for Chapel Hill Church. God has wonderful things in store for us as a church as we strive together for the gospel. And then in verses 29 and 30, Paul speaks of the cost of our devotion to the gospel. This is what he's saying. For the sake of Christ, we are to be willing to suffer for the gospel. The conflict that Paul faced over the gospel was not merely a conflict for his day and age. It's a conflict that continues to this very day and will continue until the return of Jesus Christ. The battle between the light and the darkness is raging all around us. And for now, God's enemy wants to rule the world in darkness. And God's army, his holy church, is called to engage in the battle no matter what the cost. The world's being blinded to the light of the gospel. Billions are being deceived into thinking that this is is a lie. It's the way it's been since Christ came and it'll be that way until he comes back. So Paul is calling the church to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and his gospel. For most of us, I would imagine that the suffering, if there is any, will not come even close to the suffering that Paul endured. But if it comes to that, if this church is targeted for its proclamation of the good news, then we better be ready and willing to suffer for it. And there is no greater cause for which to suffer. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul makes a strong statement about the church, God's church, and the gospel. This is what we're hearing him say about the gospel. No matter what it takes, in all circumstances, advance it. In the face of any and all opposition, defend it. With deep courage and no shame, proclaim it. For the sake of the progress of others, work for it. In every way, with your whole life, Live for it. Together with the church of Christ, strive for it. And for the sake of Jesus Christ, be willing to suffer for it. While sitting in prison in Rome, Paul had to make a decision. It was not a decision he had never made before. 
I would imagine that he was tempted many times just to give up. But there in that prison cell, he made this decision again. Live or die. And he chose life. Why? Paul chose life for the sake of the gospel. In verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1, Paul laid his decision before us and he said this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. For you and me, Chapel Hill, to live is Christ. To live is to be taken over in every way by the gospel of Christ. To surrender ourselves to his work to be done in us and his will to be carried out through us. That's the life that we choose to live by the grace of God. And may God provide everything we need to be, as Paul has shown us, set apart for the gospel of God. I'm going to invite the ushers to come now and the worship team to come and return to the stage. Let's pray together as we get ready to close the service. Father, this morning we declare that we are alive, that you have brought us life. You have made us alive. You have brought us back from the dead and seated us in the, in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. We are alive in Christ because of Christ. And this morning we're faced once again with a, a decision. Will we live then the way you want us to live. Father, I praise you for all that you're pouring into us constantly. For how you so generously pour out your grace and truth and peace and hope and joy and all of those things constantly. For the fact that our cups are overflowing, that we cannot seriously take a look at our lives and say, well, I don't have enough. Because you have given us everything. You have opened up the riches of heaven for us. The grace of your son Jesus Christ is sufficient for us. And beyond that, our cups overflow. So Father, I ask this morning then that you would challenge us. to stop being just recipients, to stop being just fans, to stop being just cheerleaders, to get down on the field, to see that our lives are overflowing with the gospel, with the good news. And to charge into this world with the vision of sharing that good news with the people around us in our lives. Father, we know that there are obstacles in our way. You acknowledge that for us. So they don't come as a surprise to you. And you have promised us more than we need. 
all of the power, all of the courage, all of the wisdom, even the very words to take the good news to the world around us. Father, open our eyes this morning to understand that we are partners in the gospel with people like the Apostle Paul and Peter and John and your son, Jesus Christ. That you want to use us to advance and proclaim, to declare the gospel, to defend it, to strive for it, to work for it, maybe even to suffer for it. Help us to see what you've given us in abundance and look with great courage and no shame to the calling that you've given us to be set apart for the gospel and share it with the world around us. We obviously need you in this. It's your message and we are just your messengers. So fill us with everything that we need. Father, this morning, together as your church, together as Chapel Hill Church, we declare that to live is Christ. Make that so in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.